Today, we'll, uh, we wanted, uh, Clark and I wanted to talk about deep white. Um, we, we sort of are talking about two different aspects. With the G5, there's a little bit of an overlap for the transition, obviously. Uh, but looking at bridging the past and the future with G5, uh, I had the pleasure of releasing the G5 in Europe last March. Um, and we've gone through um, the details as to what sort of led to the G5 to being uh, what it is today. So I want to talk about what we've done uh, prior to G5 and what really created G5, the features that were in G5, how did they come about in the first place? Because they didn't come in from thin air. Um, I'm a proud graduate of McGill University and the Université de Montréal and I, I carry that with my heart everywhere I go. Um, and I'm also an adjunct associate professor at the University of Pacific and I've, if you had a chance to visit the new facilities, awesome. Thank you Bob for that. Um, and I have, uh, I have practices in Calgary and Vancouver and each one in downtown is Invisalign only. Um, I get a chance to travel the world uh, a little bit and, uh, and it's funny how the questions are always the same no matter what corner of the world you, we, we land, it's always clinical questions, they're all similar questions and they all basically uh, teach us as speakers a lot um, and it makes us realize that we're all the same. Uh, even if the language is a little bit different sometimes. Deep bite, let me just uh, look at some examples of what we consider deep bite, 100, 110% impinging bite, deep bite maybe, and, and how do we address them? And as we know, deep bite never usually exists in a vacuum. It's usually part um, of uh, um, other malocclusions as well, be it class two, sometimes even class three, um, or cross bites, what have you. But how do we address these deep bites? What is it that we should look at? What is it that we should consider uh, when we're treating deep bite with the clear aligners? So opening up the bite and the anterior portion is certainly a big part of this, but it's not the only thing. There's other factors to consider as well. And let's look at just one case as an example, and we'll look at it and, and see what we've done. Uh, we'll look at Will's case, which has uh, almost 100% overbite. Uh, crowding, he obviously did not come in asking for the deep bite to, to be fixed. He came in wanting um, his bite uh, improved and the aesthetics improved and straightened the teeth. So he's class one uh, crowding and let's look at his clint check. Oops, sorry. I want, just wanted to go through the um, video, the clint check. drag it here. Just trying to drag it to the other uh, screen. It's just showing on this one. And it's not dragging. I apologize for that. So We'll look at screenshots of the ClinCheck. One of the things that I've done before the G5 is to, in order for, for me to open the bite and be able to move the posterior occlusion out of the way, we used to place horizontal attachments on the upper incisors. Now these were attachments that were prescribed in the ClinCheck, but not actually filled in with composite resin. The idea behind it is they act like turbos whereby the patient bites into it. It creates a posterior open bite 
separates the upper and lower posterior teeth, and that will allow us to move the teeth uh, with a lot less resistance from the antagonist teeth. And again, that was before the G5, or what probably led to some of the features that we see in G5 today. So opening up the bite in the posterior region was certainly a big part of this, but looking at leveling that curvus B, it's not, sorry, let's go back in here. Looking at leveling the curvus B, it wasn't simply um, opening up the bite, it was, it was intrusion of the anterior teeth. Um, it was uh, extrusion of some of the posterior teeth. There's a little bit of proclination involved in, uh, in there as well. Placement of horizontal attachment at a certain level in the, in the, um, on the premolar region will allow us to do both. So looking at it uh, biomechanically as we extrude the posteriors uh, or the bicuspids, we, we will be intruding the anteriors as well. One of the things that I've always done is before doing any intrusion will be to align the incisors first. Align them first and then proceed into intruding them and that usually helps a lot more. It, it, it makes it a lot easier, it makes it a lot more predictable and more feasible. So going from a deep curvus P to a flatter curvus P, and I keep saying out of nine specialties in dentistry, we're the only specialty that aims or wants to flatten that curvus P uh, for some reason. So we're, we're flattening that curvus me as much as we can. It doesn't have to be completely flat. Uh, but looking at Will's case with, with a progress, starting off, we're aligning the lower anteriors. We're intruding uh, them a little bit. We're proclining them a little bit as well. And as we progress, we were able to open uh, the bite to what we consider ideal. So we maintain the posterior teeth in a class one occlusion. We open up that bite posteriorly a little bit more as well, anteriorly, maintain the midlines aligned and create a class one relationship. So looking at, at well, initial and final. Again, if you notice the step between lower three and four, on the right-hand side, you see that gingival step about three or four millimeters. That's how much that curvus B had to be leveled by. And now you can look at this and you'll see how that gingival level has aligned quite nicely. So if we superimpose the, the anterior, uh, the, the frontal uh, shots, again, I want to go back in here, just take a look at the step between three and four. And there's a bit of extrusion of the bicuspid, mostly intrusion of the lower anteriors, but it's a combination of the two. So looking at it, when we, look, when we look at a deep bite, one of the first things that we have to look at is unraveling the crowding, uh, doing a little bit of arch development. Um, we want to level the curve of speed and, and curve of Wilson as well. Now, going into, and not to insult anyone's intelligence, obviously, when you look at it from two different view, we can't look at it from a two-dimensional point of view and think of a deep bite in terms of curve of speed. Uh, we were all guilty of that, I know, including me, until you sort of start paying a little bit more attention to what we're actually doing, be it with clear aligners or with braces. Uh, because we have to consider that curve of Wilson, which in my opinion helps just as much in opening up the bite. If you look at our crowding cases, deep bite cases, what we have is the, there's a little bit of a collapse in the arch, in both the upper and the lower arch. And by simply uprighting them, we're not extruding them, we're simply uprighting them, that buccal cusp tends to appear to extrude half a millimeter, maybe a millimeter. But even with half a millimeter, obviously this, this is a diagram with an exaggerated move, but you can see what happens. Those lower teeth, as soon as we upright them, the cusp tip travels occlusally a little bit more, and that creates about maybe half a millimeter of opening up the bite. 
Now, obviously, the same thing happens in the upper arch. Again, teeth are all collapsed inwards. We take them and apply them, which is what we call dental expansion, or more accurately, arch development. We take these upper teeth that are tucked in, we expand them a little bit more, and again, that brings the, the cusps, especially the lingual cusp, down, traveling down a little bit more, which is what we call sometimes plunging cusp and can create premature contact sometimes. So basically, by leveling that curve of Wilson in both the upper and the lower arch, we simply upright the teeth, which makes it aesthetically more pleasant for the patient. It creates a little bit more space, because as we know, leveling a curve of Wilson will create space in the arch. Leveling the curve of SP will require space in the arch. So what I say is when we level both curve of SP and curve of Wilson, one, one curve borrows space from the other. It's that simple. That's why when we have patients coming in and you look at the ClinCheck and you're simply aligning, you're sort of developing the arch a little bit, we're doing a little bit of expansion, patients come back and every now and then they say, there's a food trap between my molars or between the molar and the bicuspid. And you go back and look at the ClinCheck and say, I haven't created any space. I haven't really moved these teeth. All I did is upright them a little bit. Well, when we take these lower teeth or the, the upper teeth, but you'll notice it a little bit more with the lower, as you take them and upright them, that actually creates space in the arch. Um, so it, 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 it drives the, the cusp tips upwards a little bit. It opens up the bite from the posterior, and it creates a little bit of space. So what I usually do in cases like this is I request virtual C chains at the end with the overcorrection aligners that goes as far back as the sixes. It doesn't stop on the three. So I go with my virtual C chains from six to six, and that usually helps um, get rid of that space that we create in between uh, the posterior teeth. So just to sum it up, you got the upper teeth, you got the lower teeth, you've uprighted them, you develop the arches, and that helps us open up the bite. It helps us create a bit of space for the crowding. And if we look at, if we look at sort of the reverse of what Bill Prophet has written in his book, one millimeter of intrusion of the posterior teeth usually gives us two or three millimeters of intrusion in the anterior teeth. If we were to reverse that, if we say one millimeter of extrusion and the, and the posterior teeth will give us opening of an anterior bite by two to three millimeters. Bill Prophet says two, Samir Bishara says three millimeters, so let's agree to meet halfway, two and a half. So now, looking back at leveling the curve of Wilson, by intruding the upper teeth, or by, sorry, extruding the upper teeth, or simply uprighting them, and allowing the cusp tips to travel down in the upper arch half a millimeter, and on the lower arch up half a millimeter, that's a millimeter, that's one millimeter opening, which is very simple, very feasible, uh, biologically and biomechanically is easily done, you just open up the bite one millimeter in the posterior region. That just gave me two and a half to three millimeters in the anterior region. So I just took an eight millimeter overbite and brought it to five millimeter overbite without having to do anything with the anterior teeth. So it's all coming from the posterior teeth. We talked about space management. Uh, sometimes the reason we do some of the IPR with, by leveling the curve of space is because sp space is required. Uh, but if we're lucky enough and be able to level the curve of Wilson at the same time, then we can borrow space from there and not do any IPR or a lot less IPR. The other thing we do is, so we just open up the bite from the posterior region. Now we go in and intrude the anterior teeth, but it's not a simple intrusion. Most, especially for a class one, to take a typical class one crowding uh, deep bite case, those upper and lower anteriors are usually tucked in lingually a little bit. Everything sort of the arches collapse inwards a little bit. So by taking the lower anteriors and aligning them and proclining them a little bit, and it doesn't have to be much, um, a millimeter or two, uh, that will allow us, that will create space, but will give us 
relative intrusion, so to speak. So if you look at the incisor ledges from the frontal view, as you procline those lower anteriors, it may appear that those teeth, really the incisor ledges are traveling gingivally a little bit more. So at this point, we want to procline them if the gingiva allows us. And I, sometimes in a class, in a class two Devoin case where the lowers are too proclined, we can't do that. But in cases class two Devoin maybe or simple class one, we can rely on that helping us uh, open up a deep bite in the anterior region by simply proclining them to what we consider ideal. Extruding the lower premolars, not at this point, because if we think in a, in a sort of two-dimensional way, we figure the level of curve is P, I have a four or five millimeter curve SP. I need to intrude the anteriors to three millimeters. Now I have to extrude the, the, the bicuspids two millimeters. Not true at all. Rarely do we ever need to extrude those bicuspids more than a qu three quarter of a millimeter, maybe a millimeter at most. So now you can see how this becomes a little bit more reasonable. The numbers now add up and a quarter, uh, three quarter millimeter, maybe a millimeter of extrusion of those bicuspids is certainly feasible biologically and certainly feasible with aligners as well. And certainly, especially in, in Will's case, and that's a good example, and I always add that um, in there, not, not, for, not for my colleagues, the orthodontists, but general dentists sometimes, referring dentists when uh, they call me and say, I was considering extracting that one lower incisor. And obviously that's the worst thing we can do because then that won't allow us to procline those lower anteriors. We create a Bolton discrepancy which will force us to keep those lower teeth upright and will actually take away from some of the properties that we, or some of the features that we can use to uh, get rid of that deep bite. So lower incisor extraction really, um, we explained to my uh, referring dentist, should, should maybe apply in class three treatment cases or if it's gonna be a class two, maybe two upper bicuspid with one lower incisor. So, and like we said, it usually occurs in combination with other malocclusions. So be it crossbite, be it class two, distalization, or what have you, um, it all occurs in, in combination. But if you put all these little pieces together, what are we doing? We're unraveling the crowding. We're taking the, uh, we're leveling that curve of Wilson in the posterior region, which will give me a, a millimeter and um, one millimeter of what we call extrusion in the posterior region, which will translate to two to three millimeters of opening up the bite in the anterior region by leveling both the curve of Spear curve of Wilson, we're intruding the lower anteriors, maybe a couple of millimeters, uh, proclining them a couple of millimeters. That proclination will give me maybe half a millimeter. So if you do the math, we got two to three millimeters in there, two millimeters of intrusion, another half a millimeter of proclination. We just went from eight millimeter overbite, if we were to call this 100% overbite, to 50% overbite or 40% overbite. And it wasn't, we're not simply relying on the intrusion of upper and lower anteriors. Now, I keep talking about lower anteriors, but we can also gain some space by intrusion in the upper anteriors as well. Um, some of our sort of uh, collapsed bite patients um, can afford to have maybe a millimeter of intrusion in the upper anteriors. You probably don't want to do any more than that. Um, you, you know, you don't want to take away from their smile either. Uh, but if you factor in two millimeters intrusion on the bottom, one on the top, uh, two to three millimeters from the posterior region, half a millimeter from proclination. Again, we just went from 100% overbite to 40% overbite. So looking at it from a two-dimensional point of view, looking at simply leveling the curve of speed, this is not what we're doing. Whether we know it or not, or whether we like it or not, posterior teeth are involved in helping us open up that bite. That also affects 
the, the FMA and we'll look at, at a couple of measurements as well. Uh, the mandibular plane angle will change a little bit. So intruding and proclination of the anteriors, again, mostly the lowers because it's a little bit more stable from a stability point of view. Intrusion of the lower anteriors is a little bit more stable, Sa same with extrusion. Intrusion and extrusion lower anteriors is a little bit more stable than the uppers. And also the uppers will control the smile line as well. So chances are we, we, we're not going to want to intrude those upper anteriors more than a millimeter at this point. Um, extruding the premolars, half a millimeter, maybe a, a millimeter as well. And collectively, all of these put together will unravel the crowding, will improve the aesthetics, will make the patient happy, uh, but will open up the bite uh, quite nicely. And you can easily go for on a non-growing patient from 100% to 50% or at least 40%. If we can't bring them to ideal, let's bring them as close to ideal as possible. And if we follow through with some of these patients, uh, patient comes in, um, young teen, late teens, comes in with a deep bite. Um, class one, she's, you know, the picture doesn't do it justice on the right-hand side, she's class two-ish a little bit. And I want to distalize on the right-hand side as well. So th 35 aligners. Um, looking at the, uh, the ClinCheck, at the superimposition of the uh, uh, slides of the ClinCheck, you can see class two elastics because there is a little bit of distalization on each side. And that bit of distalization space will allow me to create space to align the upper anteriors as well. So let's look at it, sorry, let's look at it from, keep going forward. I want to look at the ClinCheck from the buckle view first. I'm going too fast or too slow. Oh. There you go. Perfect. So looking at it, there's uh, some distalization, I apologize for that, some distalization to get a socked in class one and bicuspid relationship. Class two elastics would certainly help, but you can look at the anteriors, we're torquing them, we're aligning them, and then we're intruding them um, by the end of the treatment. And clinically looking at it, initially we start with this deep bite by a line of 12, the bite is starting to open up a little bit. Remember, we haven't intruded the teeth yet, the, the anterior teeth. It's just unraveling the crowding of the posterior teeth and upriding them. That by itself will just open up the bite a little bit. As we progress by a line of 22, again, we haven't really started intruding the anteriors, but the bite is starting to open up a little bit more. You can see uh, distalization spaces opening up in here, and this space will help us ultimately align those anteriors as well. But by the end of it, um, it wasn't all intrusion of anterior teeth. Uh, we've, we've got a, nice, a nicer class one relationship um, in the bicuspid and in the canine region. And we certainly have um, an ideal overbite overjet on this young patient. And if you were to, to compare the ClinCheck with what was happening clinically, you will notice that sometimes clinically we will be a little bit ahead of the ClinCheck in terms of bite opening. And again, that's that's because of what's happening in the posterior region. Patient comes in again, class two, certainly deep bite. We require distalization as well. And like we said, deep bite rarely occurs by itself. Uh, looking at the ClinCheck, again, we're distalizing 36 aligners. 
and I still do, um, I usually do an elastic jump on teenagers, um, except when I need space in the anterior region. That elastic jump is not going to help me. I need to create space in the anterior region to allow uh, alignment. I need space to align those anterior teeth. So I would do distalization. I will still supplement with class two elastics. And if the class two elastics will give me sort of super correction of the class two to a class one, then I'm happy with that. That's usually never an issue. Like ended from the uh, buckle view. Again, distalization, class two elastics, and opening up of the, ant of the anterior open, uh, deep bite. So let's follow clinically. Initially, again, almost 100% overbite, biting into the cingulum of the upper anteriors. Class two distalization, opening up the bite. And as we distalize, sometimes we need to reduce the occlusion from these plunging cusps as well, because part of it is pro uh, expansion, part of it is distalization. And that lingual cusp on the upper sixes and sevens can get in the way and create premature contact. And as we progress, spaces are being created. And by the end of it, we certainly reduce that overbite to 30%, um, a little bit of an overjet, a millimeter or two. And we're certainly able to open up the bite to what we consider ideal at this point. Again, if you follow through, a little bit of arch expansion on the top is visible clinically as well. So pre-treatment and post-treatment, that's certainly a different smile. Uh, we did, did manage to intrude the upper centrals only uh, for a millimeter or so. Anything beyond that, what I want to do is level the gingiva, um, obviously. And that's how I decide how much intrusion to create in the upper arch. Um, we've, we've shown a couple of teenagers, um, patient ready to retire. She wants to have that upper crown replaced. Her dentist sent her to align the lower anteriors and get that open bite, to get that deep bite opened a little bit more so it can replace that upper left central incisor with an ideal crown with an ideal bite. Same thing, unraveling, the, 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 the arches collapse a little bit. You can see it clinically. And as we expand the arches or develop the arches, and then intrude the anteriors, especially the lowers, a proclinum a little bit, we end up opening up the bite to what we consider ideal, and then this crown can be replaced with a new crown, which will be a lot more aesthetic, a lot more functional as well. But if you look at the pre-treatment and post-treatment, look at the posterior region, look at the, look at the molars. So what you'll notice is, um, the, the, if we want to call it posterior over, uh, over bite, uh, it opens up a little bit more. You see a little bit more of the clinical crowns at this point, if you, especially if you look at the lower arch. And again, this is simply uh, upriding those posterior teeth, leveling the curve of Wilson. Um, it gives her um, a little bit of freedom of movement with the lower arch, and it will allow me to open up the bite in the anterior region. And then a little bit of intrusion, a couple of millimeters of intrusion on the lower anteriors is all we require at this point to open up that bite. And again, you see arch development or arch expansion. <coughs> So you don't necessarily have to request it, you simply request expansion or development uh, or increasing the, the intermolar distance, whichever way you, you, you communicate with your technician. Developing the arch simply uh, takes care of the curve of Wilson and that opens up the bite quite nicely. And a teenager with, with, a, with an elastic jump this time, 
I didn't need much space in the anterior region, uh, class two with a deep bite. Uh, so I, I, pre I uh, requested uh, an elastic jump at this point, uh, but align the teeth, have her wear the elastics full time. And at this age, at 12 years old, it really doesn't take long for that elastic jump to take effect because we're taking care of growth, not because we have a magic wand. Uh, class, guess she's trying to get closer to a class one relationship at this point. And by the end of it, she's certainly sitting in a better class one. That bite opens up nicely. The, the midlines are on. And it didn't take as much work um, as we initially uh, thought it would by looking at 100% overbite. So pre-treatment and post-treatment. And if you look at the clinch check, again, that was an elastic jump. Aligning a little bit of proclination of the lower anteriors as well with that elastic jump because of the class two elastics. Superimposing the uh, frontal shot. And again, I just wanted to show this picture, the proclination of the lower to ideal. We're not pushing them beyond ideal. We're not pushing them beyond healthy. We're simply setting them at what we consider ideal. So now we're looking at class one and class two, which is where deep bite usually occurs. Every now and then, we get a class three bite that is actually deep bite. Patient comes in with this. So um, certainly uh, transverse issues, sagittal issues, and vertical issues. It's just looking quickly a little bit because it is a little bit different. Her treatment was a little bit different. We still rely on the bite, uh, on, on leveling the teeth in the posterior region. Uh, we'll do the analysis and then we'll look at the comparison afterwards. I did the Ricketts and the Steiner analysis. Uh, but she's got an anterior cross bite and she's got mobility on those lower anteriors from occlusal trauma. Try to get her, see if she was pseudo class three baby, see if we can bite her edge to edge as she wasn't capable of biting edge to edge. That lower five, the lower right five has migrated distally. She's actually missing the sixth. Uh, there's a little bit of super eruption on the, uh, on the uh, posterior teeth as well, and a certainly exaggerated lower curve of speed. And looking at her clincheck, we decided to level that curve of speed, develop the arches. I wanted to see where her bite is. I needed to procline the upper anteriors as well. But I did the first clincheck. We, uh, we did two phases. We did refinement on this patient. I did no elastics, and I did no interproximal reduction. What I wanted to do is decompensate the upper and the lower arches first, basically level that curve SP, get her out of that deep bite, see where she's at, and then decide in the refinement what we need to do really to get her real bite, to get her real occlusion. So same thing, extrusion of the posterior of the bicuspids, intrusion of the lower anteriors, uh, a little bit of proclination and aligning, alignment of the upper anteriors as well. And in the second phase, uh, when I did refinement, I did some interproximal reduction. That interproximal reduction in the upper arch was simply for black triangles. It had nothing to do with a Bolton or anything. It was simply black triangles. And on the bottom, it's because she had a class three tendency. She was biting edge to edge at the end of the first clinch check. You notice the power ridges on top. The power ridges on the upper anterior teeth is because I want to torque the upper anteriors. I don't want to flare them out and create spaces. I want to apply buccal crown torque, lingual root torque, the reason I have them on the lower teeth is whenever I work on a class three patient, I do interproximal reduction. The last thing I want to do is take those lower anteriors and tip them in. 
So what I want to do is I want to request lingual root torque, which will automatically give you these power ridges, which will allow the lower teeth to translate. So we IPR, we create space. I don't, want, I don't simply want to tip them in. I'll have them translate, and these power ridges are extremely important for that. So following through her treatment, and as we progress, deprogramming, I believe deprogramming, the aligners does a good job deprogramming, getting the muscles out of the way um, so the patient can find her bite. And as we get this, at this point that we did refinement, we figure this is her bite. We haven't done any elastics or IPR up until this point. At this point, I started with my class three elastics, interproximal reduction in the lower anterior region, couple of spots just to get rid of the black triangles in between the upper centrals. And within seven or eight aligners, we start getting into a nicer bite, a healthier bite. But that certainly that curve of speed had to be corrected before we can decide on any treatment plan. And as we progress, we were able to open up the bite um, to what, we what I consider at least ideal in an anterior region. Shifting that midline, her midline went off, was off by about three or four millimeters, and she's got fremitus and mobility on the lower anteriors. The second we got her into this with a little bit of occlusal reduction, see her six weeks later, those lower anterior, anteriors were quite stable and solid. Now, I didn't want to be a hero and mesialize that lower right five, uh, but we were able to give her a much healthier uh, occlusion, uh, a class one canine relationship, and uh, level that curve of speed to open up that bite a lot better. So mostly we did no harm, we did an improvement, we improved the bite, and look at it from pre and post treatment. Again, you can appreciate the, the buckle torque on the upper anteriors, the lowers, even though we did IPR, we didn't simply retrocline them. And if you look at that seven, the lower right seven, um, taking that tooth and uprighting it was probably the toughest part uh, about this whole treatment. I didn't request any interproximal reduction distal to that lower right six, uh, but I kept an eye on it at almost every visit. I'll go in with a polishing strip, make sure there's no friction. Um, what's nice about clear aligner treatment is that it's a frictionless system and we want to keep it that way and we want to take advantage of that. So going in with, the, with a polishing strip, just making sure um, it's, uh, there's no binding in there and simply taking that seven, you can appreciate how upriding that seven can drive that buckle cusp tip up a little bit more and help us open up the bite um, a little bit more as well. The nasolabial angle has improved. Uh, one of her chief concern was the upper lip being retruded at the beginning of the treatment. Um, we created a little bit more space for implant in quad two and four. And we traced the CEPH, and I wanted to, to really see how was it we managed to open up that bite. Um, again, we did the Ricketts and the Steiner, um, and we now comparing pre-treatment and post-treatment, there was really a couple of values that I wanted from that. Um, Overjet has obviously changed from minus six to plus three, so that's quite a bit of a, uh, a difference in both the upper and lower incisors played a big part in that. Now overbite improved by 50%, we went from six and a half millimeters to three millimeters. So that's a 50% improvement. This is as close to ideal as we can have her. The upper incisors proclined, uh, no doubt about it. There was a little bit of compromise in here um, because um, as I learned uh, from my program director at the University of Montreal, we don't treat a CEPH, we treat a patient. Um, so these numbers may look off a little bit, uh, but in her mouth, that certainly gave her a healthier bite. And her FMA went from 16 
uh, to 19 degrees. So two and a half degrees of bite opening as measured by the FMA. Now this is from the Ricketts analysis. The overjet you can see had improved 50% as well. Um, so her FMA actually changed the mandibular angle, but I wanted to look at the Steiner analysis as well. Um, the upper lip to E plane, that certainly has improved, uh, maybe not too ideal, but certainly improved. Uh, upper incisors procline, no doubt about it. Uh, lower incisor, um, we got them from 91 to 87 to still within the norm, within what we consider ideal and healthy. And comparable to the uh, mandibular plane angle, uh, there was a one and a half degree difference. The, the previous, the Ricketts analysis gave me two and a half. The number again doesn't matter, but there was certainly an opening up the bite, and that wasn't because of intrusion of the anterior teeth, obviously. The posterior teeth, the posterior occlusion plays um, a role in this, and that's, why, that's how we were able to treat a complicated cases by not looking at the anterior portion of the bite only, uh, but at the posterior, because that helps us um, align everything quite nicely. So when you look at it in every, with, with, with the details, we sort of sat down, simply because I wanted to learn, I sat down and dissected, and then once you find what's happening, you, you, you don't necessarily need to request leveling of the curve of Wilson, you don't need to request things, just expand the arches a little bit, intrude and procline the lower anterior if, you're, if you can do it, um, maybe intrude the uppers a little bit as well, extrude the bicuspids, um, and at the end of it, all these put together will level that, that deep bite uh, quite nicely. When I started using um, aligners, when I started using uh, Invisalign for, for deep bite, it was one of the first malocclusions I started using, and everybody kept telling me, it doesn't work, it doesn't intrude teeth, and I'm thinking, I'm getting good results with this. I was really placing those horizontal attachments on the fours and fives were helping me quite a bit. Uh, but it was, you know, I, I wasn't getting emergency calls with a deep bite, you put braces on the lower anteriors, and those upper incisors will either chip or the lower brackets will come undone, and that's an emergency on a Saturday night that I don't want to have, quite frankly. So aligners were doing the job quite nicely, uh, but I didn't want to just naively think that it's, it's intrusion of the anterior. So I dug in a little bit deeper and I came to realize this is really what's happening. So we go in and we do it uh, with, with all our patients, with all our deep bite, just relying on that posterior alignment as well. And that will help us treat most of these cases quite nicely. So um, I haven't had any issue now. We notice we place with, with Will's case, we place horizontal attachment on the lingual surface of the upper incisors. Again, I didn't fill them with composite. We didn't really have attachments in there. They were simply turbos to open up the bite, a little bit of extrusion of those uh, bicuspids, uh, a little bit of intrusion of the incisors, and that's really what ultimately led um, Align Technology into saying, hey, if most of our um, doctors are doing this, why don't we actually go in and incorporate it into the G5? And this is really how that G5 came, came about. It didn't come from thin air, and I'll leave it up to Clark to elaborate a little bit more on that. And if you have any questions, I'll be happy to answer them after uh, Clark's presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Well, I think he did a good job of, of, of really discussing about the etiology and, and uh, the, the protocols that we've taken in the past in treating deep bite, uh, deep bite cases and how we transitioned into what's incorporated into the G5. So I'm going to take up and talk about a few of those things, but I'm also going to point out some differences in some of the things Sam was talking about how he had to work with his technician and talk to you about how I think that changes today with where the responsibility is for us to be able to treat these cases. So here's my uh, little disclaimer, anything I tell you today, use at your own risk. So we'll go from there. So two things happened in February of 2014 this past year is one, we got protocols for G5 for deep bite treatment, but we also got 
access to doctor control of the ClinChecks, and I think that's going to be a big thing. Um, prior to the G5 coming out, I think like Sam, I'd had an evolution in thinking about deep bite treatment. I think originally one of the things that I had done quite often was do dual treatment with deep bite cases. I'd put braces on the lower and Invisalign on the upper because it intuitively didn't make sense to me that we were going to level a curve of speed and extrude lower teeth especially by cuspids, by having a patient bite into two thicknesses of, of plastic aligners. So I just kind of defaulted and said, let's use common sense. We're going to put braces on the lower and Invisalign on the upper and, and spent a lot of years doing that. Uh, the thing that opened my eyes was when I took a really close look at the Invisalign case gallery in 2010. And I took those cases um, and took all the x-rays that were supplied and on my own sat down and looked at them and saw that uh, there were 76 very well-treated cases. Most of them had supplied x-rays and photos for me to look at. So I took it upon myself to do a cursory analysis of that 2010 case gallery. And I really broke it down into all three planes of space and broke it into broad categories so I could really see what was being treated. Because that was the answer at that time in 2010. What are people being able to treat with, with aligners and I was very surprised at that time that there was a pretty good group of patients that were being treated that had more than just mild overbite. So there were a group that were mild and then another group that was uh, what I would call moderate and then there was a significant number of patients that were being treated with deep bites and in 2010 I kind of looked at that and said wow I had never even really thought of spending much time doing that. Uh, seemed unproductive and, and probably not likely to happen and I was quite surprised to see the cases that were treated and were well treated. And of course about then is when we started to learn that, you know, open bite treatment was pretty feasible also and we've certainly seen some of those cases at this summit. So looking at these patients, I, I gathered some data on those. Now the pictures you're seeing are pictures from my practice, they're not pictures from those patients. I didn't have permission to use those, but I said, if we're really seeing this in these patients, I should be able to go back to mine and kind of gather and get some examples. And so that's what I did. And looking at the 2010 case gallery, there were 30 patients with mild overbite. And you can see what the upper crowding was. You can see what the lower crowding was. Made perfectly good sense that those were the bread and butter cases that I think we were all treating with pretty good success at that time. Then we look at moderate overbite. And we looked at the characteristics of those patients in terms of crowding. Upper crowding was getting a little bit more severe. Lower crowding was getting a little bit more severe also. And those were being treated successfully. Then we move on and look at the severe overbite, which up to this point, I really didn't uh, think I had many examples in my practice, but I did have a couple. And I noticed that of the patients in this case gallery that were being treated, the crowding was going up as the overbite was going up. So what I really looked at is, is determining where the overbite was being corrected. And where the overbite was being corrected was really a function of the crowding of the lower anterior teeth. So we were learning that there was some correction of the overbite being possible. It was mostly related to crowding and that proclination was the most significant factor at that point. So I kind of went with a new attitude in my practice is I would consider treating deep bites only relative to the amount of crowding that they had. So I think we all can appreciate the hardest deep bite case to treat is the deep bite case, low angle, 
zero millimeters of crowding on an adult male with some power masseters. You know, that's, that's going nowhere. So, you know, I kind of took a new attitude and said, okay, let's look at crowding and that being the case. Two years ago, I had the opportunity to share the stage with Dr. Boyd, and in his presentation on deep bite, you know, he made a couple of points that I think were, were very significant that furthered my thinking about deep bite treatment. And he talked about the ability that in we're, when we're correcting these overbites, a lot of it is, some of it is gonna be contributed by intrusion of the upper incisors and leveling of the curve of speed. And he talked about significant use of using the bite ramps. Now that's something that uh, Dr. Paquette had shared with us in the cab since probably around 2005. But Bob had significantly incorporated that and talked about how important that was. And so I probably wasn't using it as often at that, up to that point, and I said, okay, that makes more sense, we need to do that. And then Bob also talked about getting the correct incisor angulation, how critical that was for stability. So talked about having power ridges in the upper interior, power ridges in the lower interior, and that those were significant things to incorporate into your deep bite treatment and, and pay attention to the angulation of those lower incisors. So from Dr. Boyd, we certainly heard about incorporating bite ramps as being critical, the use of power ridges and getting the correct torque on the teeth. Also sharing the stage and talking about deep bite at that time was uh, Dr. Nikazisis. And, you know, he lives in an area that I like living in and that's like really digging into ClinChecks and how do, we, how do we get better results by making our ClinChecks better. So he affectionately calls himself the Tooth Whisperer. I love that. The best, you know, probably the best nickname in orthodontics you could have. So I'm going to give him credit here. But what he talked to us about is over-treating the curve of speed in the lower arch just like we do with a reverse curve of speed. In other words, you know, set your expectations, understanding that you're not going to get 100% of what you see in the ClinCheck. So don't set up your ClinCheck with a completely level curve of speed or slightly under-treated. If anything, you over-treat it. So this is an example that he showed us. And so from Dr. Nikazisis, you put this together and, and you see that ClinCheck modification is a significant part of treating these deep bite cases, um, especially over-treating the reverse curve of speed. And then he mentioned at that time talking about retention type attachments on the bicuspids. Well, if you take all that together, you can see exactly where G5 came from. And where G5 came from, the deep bite features, incorporates all of those things. So number one, you know, we're talking about intruding anterior teeth, and we specifically needed to measure and see what the forces were that were being applied to the teeth, and are they being applied in the right magnitude and direction to be able to get the deep bite corrected. And as John Morton and his team looked at this, of course, they, they find the answers to those questions, or as they say, solutions, and they determined that no, the forces were not being directed down the long axis of the tooth. So what was incorporated into the aligners was a pressure point, and it's important to note that anytime you have a feature in Invisalign that's incorporated, you also need to know what triggers that feature to show up. So what triggers that feature to show up is at least a half a millimeter of intrusion. The teeth that it applies to are the upper four incisors and the lower six anterior teeth. The upper cuspids don't need pressure points to be able to intrude. So it's these teeth that are affected. You need at least a half a millimeter of intrusion for those to be triggered, and you'll get the importance of that in a few minutes. Um, and what you can see as far as attachments, 
in the defaults, you can see looking on your ClinCheck whether or not you have these pressure points by looking at the treatment overview page and looking for these little blue circles. So you'll know if you have those teeth affected or not. Optimized attachments can be used in place of the extrusion attachments in the lower interior. Optimized attachments can be used in conjunction with the pressure points on the lower cuspids. So having pressure points doesn't take away the ability to use any other of your optimized attachments. That's important to know. If you're only intruding anterior teeth, you're only going to get a retention attachment on the first bicuspid. So if you look at this upper arch, you can see that uh, the retention type attachment for intrusion is just on the upper first bicuspids. So when you open up your ClinCheck and you see them just on the first bicuspids on the upper, you'll know that those teeth are intruding automatically. The other part that was incorporated in the G5, of course, is how do we extrude the posterior teeth? So on that, we're talking about the lower bicuspids. So it's important to know a couple of things. Number one, it, it's the only the lower bicuspids are affected. But when you level a curve of speed, I don't know about you, but I also think there's some extrusion of the lower molars that goes with this also. Sam certainly, certainly pointed that out, that there's some relative extrusion as you upright the teeth. But on top of that, I think the curve of speed goes all the way from the second molar to the anterior teeth. So we're also extruding the first molars too. That was not incorporated into G5. So if you're extruding your lower first molars, you need to revert back to the old school and you've got to put your retention type attachment on it to get that tooth to extrude. So in this example, you can see the, the values of the posterior teeth that I do have extruding in this ClinCheck. So when you're doing this on the lower and you're extruding the bicuspids, you're going to get these retention attachments on both of the lower bicuspids if you don't have any other optimized attachments that are called for. So remember, optimized attachments can also be used in place of these retention type attachments. So again, you have a choice when you're doing your ClinCheck. Do I want the retention attachment? Do I want another optimized attachment for either root control or rotation of the tooth? And remember, molars are not programmed. So if you're leveling the curvus B in your lower arch, be sure you look at your lower first molars and add retention attachments if necessary. So the other thing that came out uh, that was shown as, as a need was the virtual bite turbos that we were trying to make ourselves, and we were doing a pretty poor job of it. If anybody has uh, had the pleasure of seeing Linda Crawford's cases, she probably was the most creative in working with her technician. I, could, I tried to get the name of her technician several times so that they could put the turbo she was having being created on my cases, and it never worked out. Uh, but Align eliminated all of that by creating these bite plane fe features for the upper anterior teeth. So with the bite plane features, um, we can see that it affects upper anterior teeth, and you can have it put on any of the upper four incisors. And on the treatment overview sheet, it shows up as those triangles, so you can know which teeth have those on them. The other thing you'll notice with these, they're intended to create two millimeters of posterior space separation in the posterior teeth. So that's how much separation you're supposed to get between the posterior teeth. You're, these Bite plane attachments will be up to three millimeters in depth, so you have a pretty good sagittal range that you can work with to get your bite opening, but it doesn't work in all cases. The good thing is it does combine with other features. So as you can see on the screen here, I've got some power ridges 
and um, some multi-plane attachment features on that lateral incisor at the same time that we have some power, uh, some bike planes also. So having those doesn't negate anything other than, as Bill Geary talked about yesterday, if you've got bite plane features on the incisors, you're not going to get the pressure features of intrusion. Those two don't go hand in hand. So you need to know that. So the other thing that these do is they move with the lower occlusion, which is important. If you'll, if, I'm sorry, I went right past that. Here's the ClinCheck plane, and you can appreciate, I hope, that these teeth are, the bite plane attachments are moving as the lower occlusion is straightening out. So they'll change in size, they'll change in shape, they'll change in location, and we certainly don't bond those onto the teeth. We just let those sit in the back of the teeth on the aligners. The last thing is don't despair. If you've got a significant overjet and you can't use the, the bite plane feature on the upper laterals and incisors, you can use them uh, on using the traditional ones on the cuspids, so those are still available. So we've gone through all the features real quick. Bill did a good job of that yesterday, um, and I think uh, Sam did a good job of, of showing you why all those features were needed. Again, Align has given us a, a solution. So where does that leave us now? Well, it, it leaves us back to the same old place we always have been. What separates the men from the boys? Or what separates the uh, orthos from the others? And it all goes back to this. Every single time. This is where you separate the men from the boys. And this is what we try to train our residents. And it's becoming more true as you try to get better and better results with aligners. So I'm gonna kind of talk to you about that for a second. You have to start with the history and exam and the records. We develop a problem list. We look at solutions to the individual problems. We develop an optimal treatment plan for that patient. And then we decide what mechanotherapy force systems we need. So we go through this with our residents when we talk about every single case. We don't take impressions and just say, well, it's an Invisalign case. No, we sit down and do a treatment plan. And we look at the individual problems and we talk about, are the aligners capable of producing those forces to fix the problem? And if the answer is yes as you go down the list, then you've got an Invisalign case. So case selection is still critical for Invisalign to have good success, and this is where it all starts. Treatment planning is important now as you start to submit your cases. So when you get to question number seven and you're submitting the case, you know, there is a treatment planning element to this beyond just filling out the dots and going on. You know, you look at a case like this and you have to make a decision. Am I intruding the upper anterior teeth or the lower anterior teeth? How are we fixing the deep bite? Well, of course, you look at your comprehensive exam and your photos, and you see in this patient, you know, we certainly probably are not going to intrude the upper anterior teeth. They look very pleasant in her face and smile. So we need this type of information. Again, diagnosis and treatment planning. If you choose to extrude uh, the posterior teeth, then you're going to need to put bite turbos in. So if your solution is, I'm going to extrude the posterior teeth and intrude the anterior teeth, then you also have to make a decision on bite playing features all part of the treatment planning process. Well, that's well and good, but we still haven't uh, gotten to what I think is the meat of why we can be so successful treating these cases. And that is, what puts it all together now was that other little feature that was released in February of last year, which was ClinCheck Pro. And the unique features in ClinCheck Pro, the one thing that we had all been asking for and we wondered how valuable it would be is the ability for the doctor to control the tooth movement.
So we do have a feature in there where we can control the individual tooth movements. We've got a series of buttons where we can control the crown movements. We've got a series of features where we can control the root movement, the root torque specifically. The one thing that's missing is we don't have a button for sagittal movement of the teeth. So that's something that we still need to communicate with the technicians about at this point. That's one thing that, that you can't do yourself. There will be a new version coming. For those of you who haven't seen what's coming in ClinCheck Pro, I would say please go look at that upstairs on the third floor. It's exciting and amazing, the things we're going to be able to do. But anyway, we can now move the teeth, but that still isn't the, isn't the kicker. Here's the kicker. The missing link we've always had is we didn't know where we were moving the teeth, and we had no idea where the teeth were being moved. Now we have that information. That was the missing link. We can now tie it all together. The correct diagnosis and treatment plan, the ability to actually control the tooth movement, and then see the values of what the tooth movement is so that we can get to the results that we needed. So when you look at those figures that are given to us at the bottom of the screen, I know the temptation may be for a lot of y'all not to really focus in on that. I'm going to tell you that's exactly what we need to be focusing in on to get good results in our cases, to set up the best ClinCheck possible. And that's what our task is, is to set up the best ClinCheck possible. So putting it all together, case selection still matters. Diagnosis and treatment plan is very important. Understanding orthodontic principles of tooth movement. That's called two years of orthodontic education, at least. Some of y'all have managed to stretch it into three, but in Texas we can still do it in two. <laughs> ah. uh, sorry, Bob. <laughs> but what that teaches us in those residency programs is to understand our limits of tooth movement. And there are not a lot of limits in the ClinCheck software. I mean, the technicians have some limits, but when we start moving teeth around, it's not a cartoon. We, we have to know how to move the teeth around. So there are limitations. We have to have four systems available to do the movement required. Invisalign is slowly, progressively developing these four systems to help us have a better and better tool to move the teeth. So we're doing that. We needed the necessary information available in ClinCheck, which we now have, so we can see what direction the teeth are moving. And then the final thing was the doctor control of the tooth movement and the arch form. So we really have all the pieces of the puzzle together now. And so what, what Sam talked to you about as he showed you those cases that were very well treated is he was trying to communicate. You heard the word Sam used many times, communicate with communicate. Well, now it's not communicate, it's sit down and do it. You have the tools to do it in the ClinCheck Pro. How do you do that? Well, I'm going to go through a case with you that is uh, a deep bite case. And uh, this is a lady who really just came into my practice about a month or so ago. And as I was putting this together, I said, this looks to be ideal. Um, but she came in, chief complaint is my front teeth stick out. And you know, what she really has is what I borrow from my good friend, Dr. Kunick. She has a naturally aging dentition. I've been struggling with, you know, what to call this. And of course, I can count on Randy to put it together in a way that it makes perfectly good sense. But this is what she's really got. She's got a naturally aging dentition where we see all of these things in a number of adult patients. And on top of that, she has a couple of additional factors. And those additional factors are she's got a little bit of a skeletal discrepancy. And of course, she's got some other bruxism and occlusal wear issues. 
But, you know, her main problem is, you know, she's got a naturally aging dentition. You've, there's tons of those out there in dental practices who don't have their dentists explaining to them that this is just an aging process. And one of the things you can encourage your dentist to tell those patients is, would you like to look younger? There's an aging process that we can reverse. And we can reverse it with Invisalign because it can do all of these things to reverse an aging process. I really hope Randy next year gets up here and talks about that. So I'm, I'm trying to encourage him to do that. So anyway, let's go back to what's important, treatment plan, treatment plan. So when you treatment plan, we have four things that we treatment plan for. What's the maxilla gonna do? What's the mandible gonna do? This patient is a non-growing adult female. Those are gonna do relatively nothing. So what we focus in on how we're gonna change the dentition. And so we've got three planes of space. So we've got the transverse, where we want to expand and upright, exactly what Sam was talking about. And then we've got a sagittal dimension. What are the movements that the teeth need to do in the sagittal dimension for a class two patient who wants to reduce her overjet? Those crown movements need to be tipping distally. The anterior teeth need to be reclining. So remember, we can look at all these values in the ClinCheck and just see, are the teeth doing that or are they not? Let's look at the um, sagittal from the occlusal. What's one of the basic tenets of class two correction? Rotate the molars, buckle out, mesial out, distal in. That's the movement that we should see in the ClinCheck. We should be able to see it in the values on the bottom of the chart as we're moving those teeth. And what about the vertical dimension? We're talking about deep bite. She has a very mild curve of speed, but what we wanna do is intrude the posterior teeth and extrude the anterior teeth. So we can look at our ClinCheck at those values and see, are we doing that? That's right there in front of us for us to do this setup. Now let's take the lower arch. Same thing in the lower arch. We've got some uh, expansion and uprighting that we need to do in the posterior segments. She's mildly class two. What do we want to see those lower crowns doing in the lower bike and lower posterior segments? We want to see them tipping mesially. We want the anterior teeth to procline. We, right with what Bob was talking about, anterior proclination of the teeth. Vertically, what do we want to do? We want to expand, extrude the posterior teeth and intrude the anterior teeth. And again, we're going to be able to look at all of these values. So we get a ClinCheck back, and what do we do? Well, we have some ways we can evaluate it. Number one, we've got it, we, we can sit and watch it play. So that's what our friends on the dark side do. They, they watch it play and they go, ooh, it looks pretty. It's good, good to go. Well, I'm, I'm gonna encourage you to be a little more diligent than that. Uh, you've got a staging editor, so you can see the velocity of tooth movement, how many teeth are moving, all the teeth moving at the same time, all of those types of things. We've got a treatment overview that tells you some of the tools that are employed to help you get the right forces on the teeth. We've got a movement assessment to warn you of, of what's considered to be difficult movements. You notice in this case, they told me, what a guppy, no difficult movements at all. I mean, I don't know why I didn't just hit accept and go from there. It's ready to go. And then we've got the superimposition tool. So Align has provided us a lot of tools to evaluate and guess at what's going on, but every bit of that up to now is a guess. You're guessing at what's going on. You don't have the values in front of you. Now we get ClinCheck Pro, 
We don't have to guess anymore. We don't have to try to see what the teeth are doing. Look at a superimposition tool. Look at a chart and see what features are on the teeth. We've got the values right in front of us to look and see what's happening. They're displayed when you turn the ClinCheck on and you hit the tooth movement. You can see every one of these values. So now it's a real simple process. All you have to do is make the tooth movements match the treatment plan. It's all right in front of you. So in the sagittal, we want to see those crowns tipping distally. We want to see from the occlusal that the molars are rotating distally. And then, of course, we know we need to add class two elastics. So you open up the tooth stager, the turn the ClinCheck Pro on, you hit on the tooth indicator, you click on your upper molar, and you look at the values that are represented, and there's no movement of those upper molars, so what do I do? I go in and do the movement that's required to move the teeth according to the treatment plan. So I adjust it for intrusion, I adjust it, I adjust it for the angulation of the crown to tip it distally, I expand it, I can do that either through the arch expansion or individual tooth expansion, and then I do the rotation. So I took a tooth that was from zero degrees rotated in the initial superimposition, and I've added 11 degrees of rotation to those upper molars. It's exactly the prescription that we put on our brackets. You know, Roth prescription, 14 degrees of distal rotation. It's, it's applying a prescription to the ClinCheck, moving the teeth. So what about the deep bite correction? Well, Align initially gave me this, and then what they sent back was what you see on the right-hand screen. You know, they've done a little bit of intrusion, but remember my treatment plan called for extrusion of the posterior teeth, intrusion of the anterior teeth. I need to go into ClinCheck Pro and make those changes, move the teeth. So I go in and I move the teeth, extrude the posterior teeth, intrude the anterior teeth so that I get what I want in the treatment plan. And I verify that by looking at all the numbers. I also keep in mind the lessons we've learned from Dr. Nikazisis. You're not going to get 100% of the movement that you see in the ClinCheck. You're going to get something less than that. So you overtreat this a little bit. And when you overtreat it, you extrude the posterior teeth a little bit more. You create heavy posterior occlusion. And so you go over on the right-hand side and you tell your technician, do not eliminate the heavy occlusal contacts in the posterior teeth. Keep that in there. And what about the anterior proclination that Bob talked about? You know, what we, we've seen from the get-go and what Sam talked about, you've got to procline the lower anterior teeth, not make the teeth move procumbently where the whole tooth moves forward. We want to procline the anterior teeth. Well, if you look very closely at the superimposition on the right-hand side, you look at the lower left central incisor, we haven't really proclined that tooth nearly as much as we've protruded, pro moved the whole tooth to the buckle. And the numbers illustrate that when we look at it down on the lower left-hand side. You know, that tooth was moving 1 point something millimeters, 1.25 millimeters buckly. That's not the movement that class two correction is. The class two correction should be a proclination of the lower incisor forward. So what do we do? We go right back into the ClinCheck Pro we move the root right back where it was, and we take the crown, and we tip it out. The movement that we want to see. So watch this play back and forth, and you'll see the subtle changes I made in the anterior teeth. But we changed them from a procumbent type movement to a proclination movement. 
And just like Bob Boyd pointed out last year, we need to produce that interincisal angle for more stability. So while you know, some of us were taught you know, lower incisor to APO and lower incisor to mandibular plane is gospel, you know, I, I don't believe in that. I think, not that that's bad, I think that what you do is you take each case individually, this lady needed lower incisors proclining, not being procumbent and worried about staying upright, but proclining. So you have the ability to make that change. So we go, we decrease the root movement, and I'm borrowing from a lot of my friends here, Bill Geary says often and frequently, the less root movement you have in the ClinCheck, the more predictable it is. So I remove the root movement, and I do the crown movement. Anybody heard Willie Diane talk about pushing crowns is more predictable than moving roots? I think I've heard Willie say that a few times. I agree. So what we do is we decrease the root movement to zero, increase the inclination of the crown by almost doubling it from four to seven, seven degrees. So we've increased our inner incisal angle. So I think it looks better and it should be more stable. So here's what a ClinCheck modification looks like when I do it today. There's not a lot of really good information there for somebody who wants to look at my modifications. So it used to be, you know, somebody would look at my modifications and we were writing paragraphs. I'm assuming that Sam did the same thing on the cases he was treating prior to G5. You know, he talked about how important it was to communicate with the technician. Well, I'm going to tell you there's a lot less communication going on now because we now have the tool to produce the ClinCheck that we need based on treatment plan objectives. And so if you look at this, every single tooth was modified in the arch. That's a ClinCheck modification because as an orthodontist, using orthodontic principles of tooth movement, I know what every single tooth in that arch should be doing. Put the movement into the ClinCheck and you should expect those results. It's kind of like I think of, of, of a computer. Bad information in, bad results out. You put good information into the ClinCheck, you tell each tooth how to move and get straightened up, I'm gonna expect good clinical results to follow because we're using the orthodontic principles we've learned. So I've adjusted every single tooth, I've modified my attachments, I've modified the IPR based on aesthetics and, and whatever other objectives I needed. And the only other decision to make is, do we need elastics or not? Well, this lady is, has a class two skeletal base, has excessive overjet, we need to add elastics. So we go in and add the elastic cuts. So here's what the final ClinCheck looks like for me. And this doesn't give you a lot of information, but let's relate it right back to what the treatment objectives were. So in three planes of space, transverse, we said we wanted to expand the arches. If you look at the superimposition, we've done that. If you look at the sagittal, you know, watch the ClinCheck play, and again, it's not a horrendous amount of tooth movement over time, but all of those crowns are tipping distally a little bit as we're wearing class two elastics, and the overjet is being reduced by the help of IPR, class two elastics, and changing the angulation of the anterior teeth. We look at the vertical dimension, what did we do? We wanted to intrude the anterior teeth, extrude the posterior teeth. So you look at the superimposition. I know from the numbers that it was what I programmed in, but when you look at it, you see white teeth in the back, which means they've extruded. You see the blue teeth sticking up in the front, so we've intruded exactly what the treatment plan called for. And so that's how you verify that you've got the setup that you've wanted. So 
I'm going to summarize this right now for you and just say, you know, that what G5 has given us is greater predictability in our outcomes because we don't have to create these pressure points. We don't have to create the bite planes anymore. Um, all of those things are now built in for us in, in the G5 things. Diagnosis and treatment planning helps us set the goals for tooth movement. And so if you do this ahead of time and say, this is the way the teeth need to move to be able to correct this, you know exactly what to go do in the ClinCheck. Our experience and knowledge of orthodontic tooth movement will determine the limits. You know, there, there's not any breaks on the Invisalign ClinCheck. You can do a lot of things. It doesn't mean that they're all gonna occur. And then finally, we've, get, we've get, been given the tool last year that I think really is gonna enhance the, the, the quality of the results that we're gonna be seeing in the next year to come, and that's ClinCheck Pro. So I really hope, if nothing else, I've, I've given you a little deeper look into ClinCheck Pro and, and given you an idea of, of what the capabilities are if you really look at it in depth. So I just wanna say thank you very much. I appreciate your participation.